Welcome to That Pond Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Wixom, aka That Pond Girl. Today's guest is Weston Jordan, fisheries professional associate. Weston started in the field by earning a degree in fishery science and management from Oklahoma State in 2020. After school, he started his professional career here at Pond Medics in Prosper, Texas as an aquatic specialist and fisheries manager. Weston has an advocator license to the Texas Department of Agriculture, as well as his Fisheries Professional Association through the American Fisheries Society. He has a passion for the work he does, and I'm so excited to have him here on the podcast today. Thanks for joining, Weston. No problem. How did you get into this field? Um, well, it seems like everybody has the same kind of backstory. Um, I grew up always in outdoors, always fishing. Um, my dad was really persistent on, you know, implementing that into my life when I was really young. So um, I started at basically when I could walk. Um, I was driving a bass boat, going fishing with them on every weekend pretty much. So I really fell in love with it. Um, I originally didn't think I wanted to be or make this a career choice. Um, basically, I was going to be an engineer originally. Oh, really? um, and then my uh, my senior year of high school, I took an aquatic science class um, taught by our head basketball coach in high school. And honestly, I love the guy himself, but the reason I fell in love with it is because his passion for it made me love it so much. So I took the course and it was, I mean, simple dissection of the fish, like kind of breaking down like what they're, Food groups were just a simple, it was like an introduction course, basically to aquatic science is what it was called. So I, I took that and I was like, well, that could be a career choice. So I started looking into colleges and I was like, well, let me put engineering on the back burner. Let me see what schools actually offer programs like this that I can study in. So um, I looked at all different schools and I ended up touring Oklahoma State fell in love with their fisheries program. I met my advisor right away um, on my first tour, so that was really cool. Um, and he stuck by me all four years, so it was awesome having him, Dr. Dan Schaup. Um, so he's a great guy, um, finished through school and just loved every minute of it and wanted to get a good career, you know, career in this Continue field. On. So yeah. Sweet. I think that meeting someone influential that's excited about what they're teaching mm -hmm. is the spark that you need to know where you're going. And if you never meet someone that's excited about what they're teaching you, I feel like you're missing out on, on your potential someday. Well, like I said, he, he was so passionate about what he was teaching and it just opened my mind. I didn't think this is a field that you can really go into. I just thought, oh, you know, that's like game wardens or state work. Like I thought that mm -hmm. was it. There was no... And there's a long line to be one of those. Yeah. And I was like, I thought that was the extent of it. I really did. And then I started looking into it. I was like, holy... Crap, there's a lot of stuff here. Like, you know, yeah. So well, that's uh, like when I tell people we do pond management, they're like, What do you mean? I'm like, Well, all of your ponds need to be managed. Yeah. I didn't even know that that was the thing. A lot of people don't, yeah, they don't know who takes care of them, who manages them, you know. It's it's just goes right over people's head. They don't think about it and don't know about it. So yeah. that's pretty cool. So how long have you been at Pond Medics? Uh I started in May of 2020. Uh, so since then, it's been about a little over two and a half years. Um, and I started out um, kind of entry level. I, I was trying to really just get my foot in the door. And since then, I've kind of worked my way up. Um, finally, now I'm in charge of our quantum lake management contracts. So that's really cool. Um, I get to do all the face-to-face -face clients and 
get to tell them what we're going to be doing in their pond, how we're going to be managing it um, for their best goals in mind. So, yeah. And um, you just experienced your first Texas APMS. I did. Yeah, that was a really cool experience. Uh, learned a lot. I uh, got to meet a lot of cool people. Um, so we got to see all the new products, all the new um, vendors and stuff like that. So that was really awesome um, to get to see all that firsthand. Yeah, you get to experience the field outside of the field. Like instead of your day-to-day grind, you got to see. Oh, it was relaxing for sure. Just kind of taking a step out of the field because, I mean, it gets busy at times. I mean, during the summer is the heat of our season. So we're, we're going nonstop. So um, getting to take a step back from that and just kind of learn the reasons of why we do it and the background of why we do it is really cool. Um, and like I said, learning all the new tools and gadgets out there is really cool. So. Awesome. Well, today we're here to talk about fisheries. So what is the best time to stock fish in the DFW or North Central Texas area? Um, I feel like it it changes with the years. Um, we've had some years that are obviously hotter than others, but what we try to aim for is spring and fall stockings. So when we stock, we love to do it in the spring. Um, sometimes Depending on what people want, we can't always do that for them. We'll usually push it back to fall. But spring, we aim for March to April. Um, you want water temps to be around high 50s to 60s um, in your tanks so you can transport them safely. Um, you're, there's less risk of them being super stressed with high temperature waters and a big, you know, abundance in that tank or, you know, biomass in that tank. So um, we try to transport them at, port them at uh, cooler temperatures so we can, you know, have them less stress, a little bit calmer, um, and there's less transportation of diseases and stuff like that. So Yeah, I would assume it's pretty stressful for fish. It can be. Um, like I said, the, the easier you make it on them, the easier it's going to be on you. Mm-hmm. So when we do our fish routes and stuff, you, we're checking them every 30 minutes, making sure their oxygen supply stay the same, you know, nothing's really change and we usually ice down their tanks too just to kind of keep that water temperature at a neutral like 55 to 65 range um, is where we try to keep it so we're constantly checking on that we're constantly checking on you know their air and stuff like that so um if we see any you know signs of stress like they're really moving around in there really you know trying to jump out like stuff like that it's um we take those signs and then adjust accordingly so um we, we do it for the fish just try to keep them you know, comfortable as possible. Yeah, because otherwise, I mean, the whole run would be useless. Pretty much. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, it, it's a lot of money once you start looking at it. I mean, fish aren't cheap. And the more you lose, the either the more your clientele is going to be a little sad about it, or, you know, you're losing money at that point too. So uh, we try to just keep them comfortable and get them to the destination as quickly as possible, but safely too. So, so keeping the water temperature lower to make them less stressed to make it easier on them but is there advantage to actually putting them in the water in the spring or in the fall versus the summer and the winter like temperature wise of the environment they're headed into right and that that actually that's a great question because we like to keep them at that temperature because then if we're doing it in early say early march we're stocking upon usually their water temperature is going to be about the same so the transition phase from the tank to the pond or the lake it's going to be very similar in water temps. So it's not going to shock the fish. It's not going to, you're not going to have to take excessive amounts of time to try to acclimate them. 
um, you can acclimate them a lot more easier that way. Yeah, because I remember getting like fish, goldfish from the fair or something. And put them in the baggie in the and, tank. Yeah, yeah. you got to wait for them. It's the same situation, but it's amplified because you have, instead of, you know, two to three goldfish, you're dealing with a couple thousand, you know, bluegill or whatever you're transporting. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you're trying to acclimate them as best as possible, but you can't rush that process either. So it's kind of have to deal with their, you know, parameters. Yeah, be good to the fish. No, be good exactly. What sort of pressures do fish in the DFW areas face? So I think about like extreme weather in Texas. And because I'm from New York, we don't really think about fish necessarily as much um, because they're going to do what they're going to do. We don't stock too often. But in DFW, with the different temperatures, what does that mean for the fish? Um, well, it all depends. Uh, so like if you're looking at winter temperatures, like I know a couple of years ago we had a big freeze. Uh, I think that was in 2020. Um, oh, that was 2021. That 2020, was you're right. Sorry. Um, so we had a big freeze back then. And what we were advising people to do is, you know, keep your fountains on if it's, if you can. Uh, I know sometimes that's kind of hard to do because you can have your fountains freeze over and stuff like that. So at a reasonable temperature, try to keep your fountains on um, and keep your areas running like 24 seven. Um, I know some people don't want to do that because the electricity bill, but if you look at it as for the health of the fish perspective, like it's great to help them with keeping that stratification going uh, in the pond, you know, with temperatures dropping and rising, it can reverse stratify and stuff like that. So. You kind of want to keep those aerators running just to kind of help with that stratification process. Keep the whole temperature of the pond kind of the same. So breaking the stratification. Not breaking. The stratification. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Um, but yeah, I've learned that helps out a lot. Um, but during the summer, it's kind of the same situation. But during the summer, you have to deal with the vegetation um, limits. So as... Part of our company, we deal with pond and lake management as far as like aquatic plant management goes. Um, we're treating or removing um, submerged vegetation, algae, stuff like that. Um, that can also be a stress on fish just because if you have high like density of submerged vegetation, that's going to be, yeah, it could produce oxygen during the day or when it's a sunny day, but take, you know, at night or during a cloudy day, that's going to be the reverse or the respiration yeah, of the plants is going to be sucking in oxygen and producing carbon dioxide. So that can be pretty dangerous when you've got a, you know, high abundance of fish and plants in your pond at the same time. They're going to be both trying to use oxygen at night and it could, you know, you can sometimes have overnight fish kill. So back to it, I mean, aerators are a great thing. Um, any sort of diffusion from the bottom, um, trying to pump air into your is great one. Yeah, with ponds here, they're not deep enough to really know if they, you know, where I'm from, lakes are diamectic. They yeah. mix in the spring and in the fall, and they stratify during the summer and the winter. But here, with them being so small, it's almost like they can mix every day. It can, it can happen overnight. I mean, I've we've seen it before, and it's really sad when it does happen. It, it's rare, but um i've seen it before where yeah it's turned overnight and the fish just can't flip that quick you know so they just it's that shock factor you know mm -hmm. to them so um i'm 
my in-laws that live in Wyoming is the same way that all their ponds are, you know, eight plus feet deep because they yeah. need them to be so they don't freeze over in the winter. Um, but yeah, it's the same thing dynamic. So. So are there some fish species that don't like the cold that will die here if the water gets to a certain temperature? Yeah, we stopped one species in particular um, is tilapia. And the reason we stocked them is for an algae control through the fall through, or the spring through the fall um, throughout the summer, they're, they're algae consumers. So we stocked those with a lot of our contracts because it's it's a biologic, biological control um, but the only issue is we do have to do that every year because they don't like cold water temps. So with the temperature dropping like right now, we, we'll see them dip below 50 and it's usually below 50 is where they really don't like it and they'll die off. But, um, cause they're just a southern fish that they really like more water. So, yeah, I mean, there's nothing really you can do about it, but they're great for, um, algae control, algae control and are present in the pond. So sweet. What other fish would you suggest to stock for management practices as in the biological control that you mentioned? Yeah, there's another great option is triple grass carp. Um, and they've actually got a program through Texas Parks and Wildlife now um, where you can get a permit for them. Um, and they'll outline all the details you need to know on how to stock those. And we can actually get them for you. But the the only issue is the owner of the pond is the one that has to obtain that permit. So the stockers... They they can get them for you, but you know you have to hold the permanent as the right. Permit. It is their liability as to who's getting them, you know, kind of thing. So, but they're great for um, consuming submerged vegetations like your coontail, your naiad, um, hydrilla, all those types of submerged vegetation are really good at consuming and can they be like great soft leaves. Yeah, yeah. Anything that just I think of them as like underwater cows they just graze <laughs> all day long and they're, they're great i mean they, they do a really good biological control of it um but the reason you have to get triploids is because they really will just eat and eat and eat and grow and grow and grow and won't ever die it seems like there's there's some grass carp that seem like they live 30 plus years i think it's like mid-20s yeah like I, average life yeah i've seen them up to 30 that's why i say that but like it's it's crazy how long they can, you know, live. And they just, like I said, keep getting bigger and bigger over the years. So um, they don't want, the reason Texas Parks and Wildlife wants you to be stocking triploids is so they can't reproduce. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of beneficial, especially if you're stocking them in a pond, um, say like, you, you know, you can't have a million grass carp in a pond because th eventually they're going to run out of stuff to eat. And then mm -hmm. from there, you know, you're going to be picking up dead fish a lot. So, you know, it's, it's. Well, and I mean, the way that things flood here, as long as, and the issue in New York and why you have to have triploid and you have to make sure that there's no spillway is because. That too, them because they can always, I mean, water always travels downstream. So most of the ponds we take care of are in a, you know, stormwater system or some sort of tributary system. So. Each one's going to flow into another pond and another pond and so on and so forth. So that's, yeah, exactly. Good point. That's another reason that they make us do that. So it's important to understand also when you're talking about grass carp is if you do have good vegetation that you want to keep or you want to keep some of it for other fry mm -hmm. and other small fish is we used to have to um, fence off areas of plants that you want mm -hmm. to keep so they don't eat it. 
Yeah, I mean, you could always do that too. I mean, I've seen, yeah, some underwater, like kind of like a, uh, like how it's kind of like a pot almost that kind of, but it's open at the bottom and like guards around it. It's pretty cool, but yeah. Yeah. Um, how many grass carp per acre? Do you know? Were you ever taught that in school, or did you not cover grass carp as much? We never really covered them. Um, I mostly studied sport fish species. Um, and like I said, I studied in Oklahoma, so we didn't really touch on grass carp a whole lot because they don't get submerged vegetation like Texas does. Because okay. um, they're a little bit colder in the winter, and it's they have less of a season to grow. I guess is the best way to. Um, word that so we never really touched on them a whole lot i kind of actually started learning about them more when i got here um because i knew the whole system once we started stocking i got well introduced to it so um but to answer your question i'm not sure exactly what um the stocking rate is per acre um i've got every other fish in the back of my mind but um well, I know from, we have a pond up in New York, my family builds it and we stocked it. And my dad, his problem is water meal. Yeah. And I told him it's because we live on a farm. And so there's a lot of nutrients in the water mm-hmm. and somebody's going to use the nutrients. Yeah. But he got in his mind that the DEC, Department of Environmental Conservation, told him that he could stop 12 grass carp every other year. Um, and it's not even two acres? No, I wouldn't do that much. No, um, I tell him not to, but he's like, well, the DEC said so. And he said that he likes to see them pretty much get up and mow his lawn on the outside perimeter of his pond. Yeah, what I would see in a typical Texas pond is like one to two per acre. Um, you can go, I think, up to five is what mm-hmm. like they'll allow you to, depending on how much mm-hmm. um, biomass density you have in your pond. And that's kind of like a... But you have to worry that if you eliminate all the plants by having those, right, yeah. what are you going to get instead? So I always err on the side of caution and I undershoot it. So I'd, I'd do one to two if it was my pond. So They do get very large. I was told because it's an exponential growth mm-hmm. of them that they can eat their body weight in plants a day until yep. they get, you know, to be able to. Yeah, it's, it's crazy because we've pulled some out of ponds like we've been saying or, um, whatnot and we've pulled some out that are easily 30 plus pounds and it's like and they're not even like like i said they're not fully grown so it's it's amazing to see well if he went back in that pond how much longer would he you know grow or you know how much longer would he last and then it's crazy in grad school we used to go fishing for him by taking pieces of bread and putting them into a ball and putting them on a hook and throwing them in yeah so um is there anything that you can recommend to keep people's fisheries healthy here in Texas? Like aeration, we already talked about that. That's a great addition to water to help with the oxygenation and the breaking that stratification. Is there any other? Yeah. Um, we always recommend, I mean, it's never too late to start a fisheries program. Um, so we, we always try to, you know, we'll do every other year stockings. We'll, we'll start up a feeder program for them. I'm kind of getting them different, you know, food sources kind of thing. Um, so we we will stock usually, like I said, we'll stock early spring. Uh, and that will usually be your intro stocking. So we'll give you, you know, fingerlings of bluegill, sunfish, um, four to six inch bass, um, yearlings and stuff like that, just to kind of get you started. Um, and then each year after that, you're going to come in with another, you know, species of forage fish. So we'll do, you know, bluegill, 
and like alternate bluegill, red ear, um, minnows, fathead minnows is a great option for algae as well, too. So um, we, we kind of alternate off, but it's always a great time to start a fishery. I mean, you can never make them too big, <laughs> my, my thing. So. And then uh, do you recommend fish feeders? I do. Um, and I've seen them. They, I think people don't like them because it takes a while to train fish. And, and, but I've always learned it's dependent on the fish species. So like cat, catfish, for instance, are really easy to feed or train. And they train within a month. Like it's incredible how fast they pick it up. And then like after that, a couple months later, your bluegills will learn how to, you know, feed or train off them. I think the people don't like them because say they want to grow a trophy bass fishery bass take a long time to feeder train and once you feeder train them it's hard to wean them off of that okay. so um yes and no i i like them personally um but it's for the person's request really i mean and their long-term goals and how much exactly like and that's always the first question i ask is what are your goals what do you want to get out of this like kind of thing so we always keep that in mind all right. Do you have a favorite fish? I do. Um, and this was always one I actually wanted to study more in college, but we only touched on it a little bit. Um, and we don't see them around Texas very much, but uh, smallmouth bass <laughs> are awesome. Um, Why? I like them because they're such a mighty fish for their size. Like, yeah, you can argue like largemouth bass, there's a lot of muscle there. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, even if, you, if you've been fishing for smallmouth, the fight of a smallmouth, like a two-pound smallmouth versus a four-pound bass, like largemouth bass, is honestly, I give the advantage to this two-pound smallmouth. Like they're crazy how, you know, feisty those guys are. And another thing I love about them is their coloring. They're, they're way more green. They're way more like spotted and just i don't know they've always had a great color to them i've just thought they've been beautiful fish so yeah well i was surprised when i moved down here that you know it's hard for me to tell the difference between large and smallmouth bass like you know you can look at the maxillary or whatever um and the eye but you guys don't have smallmouth here no strange to me the closest we have um that i've actually caught some is like texoma which is right on the border of oklahoma texas mm -hmm. so um that's pretty far north for us and they've, they've got them there so i mean it's it's great fishing for them but it's it's nothing like you'd see oklahoma and further north you know yeah so why don't they live here it like they like cooler water they like yeah. deeper water i mean most of our lakes around here aren't really all that deep um i mean i've heard they've got them in like grapevine and stuff like that but i We've never seen them in person, so I yeah. couldn't tell you. But you can stock largemouth, so I just assumed you could stock smallmouth too, or do they just hatcheries not have them as much? It's, they're they are harder to find. Um, most of the hatcheries around here won't have them. You'll have to go, you know, further north, uh, um, trying to get them. But I've always wanted to stock some because I think that'd be really cool. Um, like I said, they're my favorite fish by far. I did not expect that. Yeah. Um, they're cool. <laughs> my favorite fish is lake sturgeon. Oh yeah. I think they are sweet. We studied those and uh 
a big one in Oklahoma that they do a lot of research on is paddlefish. Oh yeah. Um, they ODWC, the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation, does a lot of research on paddlefish because um, it's well, both those and sturgeon are technically prehistoric fish. Yeah, exactly. So they're they're cool. Um, they have. They have all sorts of breeding programs for them. Um, they have stocking programs. Like it's crazy how much money they spend on those two fish a year. <laughs> so I did tell you that during my internship, a bunch of small uh, sturgeon that they were trying to stock ended up getting caught in a net and dying. And they, my internship was to recover all their pit tags. Yeah, I so believe it. I was dissecting five dollars a fish to get them out, and I did a bunch of measurements and things just to see that a growth scale to add to the data by because these sad guys didn't make it. Yeah, there was almost a um I I actually took another internship at the time, but there was a different internship that I applied for um with ODWC up in uh I think it was north of Tulsa, but it was basically a paddlefish breeding um and like raising basically yeah. it was a whole warehouse where they just brought them in on trucks that they caught out in, you know, Red River or wherever, they, you know, wherever in the state. And uh, they come in and breed them like you breed salmon up north. Like, it's crazy how much money they put into it. It's really yeah. cool, though. And when I was up in Minnesota, they said, like, up way north in Minnesota, they can they actually spearfish for, like, sturgeon. I believe it. And then it's like <laughs> you can take, you know, like people are standing next to their sturgeon. I was in Vermont with uh, kids doing like fishing things and they pulled out a six foot male surgeon in front of us. And yeah. I went to a conference later that year in Vermont and that was the only male surgeon that they found in all of Vermont through the National yeah. Wildlife. So cool. And yeah, those prehistoric fish, it's, it's amazing to see what evolution does. It knocks some things out and keeps some things around. I mean, fish are cool, man. <laughs> fish are cool. That's why I got into it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. No problem. Your time. I'll be around.